Let's go ahead and start in prayer. Let me get started for today. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the praise and worship we can have and worship in you. You are righteous and holy. Uh, righteous and holy God. Deserving worship, we pray that our hearts would worship you at all times. That we'd seek you above all things. Not earthly pleasures or um, concerns, but instead just know who you are and be still and silent in that. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So start out with, uh, uh, this morning is a beautiful morning. Sun's up, wind's not blowing, and there's just a hint, a small promise of spring this morning, maybe, as you walked out the door. I was thinking to myself, usually in days like this, there's a hot air balloon. Sure enough, two of them are sitting above Brandon as we're coming down Highway 11. So the promise of the future, what a nice day. So birth of spring. Speaking of births, 94 years ago today, today, Henry James Birch, my dad, was born in a log cabin without running water or electricity in northern Wisconsin, in a little town called Sheldon, Wisconsin. That was 94 years ago. No running water, no electricity. They were so much tougher than we are. We are a soft, soft generation. I'd love to get rid of this stupid thing someday, but we can't in our society understand that. But uh, I was thinking about that today. Um, So a couple things here uh, before we get started. Um, So when you were, some of you are old enough here probably to remember like Sesame Street. Remember that, right? You had uh, Ernie and Bert, and you had Big Bird, Snuffle Up, I guess, or whatever. But we always the show at the beginning would say, today's broadcast is brought to you by, and it'd be something like the letter C and the number five, right? So they emphasize C and five. So you're a little kid learning, right? It was, so the, the, the letter of the day and the number of the day, Okay. When I coached basketball at Marshall High School, I was a JV basketball coach, and I made my kids every game, JV game, come up with a word of the day before the game, right? So we had to emphasize. So I had the kids brainstorm, say, what can we come up with? So they would say, okay, what can we come up with? Intensity. Let's do intensity. So intensity was the word of the day, right? So that's what we practiced. That, that day we focused on intensity during the game, right? It was kind of a fun thing to do. Or maybe it's defense. Or maybe it's hustle. Or maybe it's teamwork or something like that. One time when a kid raised his hand and said, what's the word of the day? He said, mental durability. <laughs> so that's pretty good for a high school kid to come up with that, right? Well, the word for the day, today's word, is the word sanctification. So that's the word for today. So I'm going to have that plant, you to plant that at the back of your mind. The word for the day is sanctification. And we're going to talk about what sanctification means. It becomes more Christ-like to have attributes and qualities that are more like Jesus Christ on a continuing, ongoing basis, okay? Um, But before we start that, before we actually get into that, I've been talking and texting with a friend of mine. He and I are good friends, and we talk about a lot of things, but one of the things we talk about a lot is his dad. So my friend's dad, okay, My friend's dad was a World War II fighter pilot, okay? And he flew an airplane called the Hellcat, which was a spinoff of the Wildcat. 
And in one day, on October 12, 1944, this individual, my friend's dad, scored four enemy kills down four enemy planes in one mission. He didn't score any uh, kills before that or after that, and you need five to be an ace. So he was one away from his ace his entire life. Nonetheless, nonetheless, he was a great pilot, four kills in one mission, and he flew the Hellcat. It was near the Philippines, near Leyte Gulf, it was called, right? So that's pretty impressive. But in World War II, it wasn't always like that. In fact, if you go to the very beginning of the war, the problem with the American Navy was they flew up against this thing, the A6 M2 Mitsubishi Zero, the Japanese fighter plane. And it wreaked havoc on the um, um, airplanes from the, uh, from the U.S. At that stage of the game, at the very beginning of the war, the Mitsubishi Zero, the Japanese Zero, was almost unbeatable. It wasn't. It had problems. It was extremely fast. It flew, it flew 350 miles an hour at top speed, faster than anything we had. It had a 14-cylinder engine, seven on each side. It, it, was, it could climb... It could dive, it could maneuver, it could turn, it could shoot. It was basically the king of the air at the beginning of the war. It was the king of the air. The Japanese owned the air war at the beginning of the war, up front, right? It also had a large fuel tank and a drop fuel tank, so it could go very long missions at a long time, and their pilots were highly trained. It had two problems. One problem is it did not have a self-sealing gas tank, and the other problem was that the cockpit that the Japanese pilot sat in was not well protected. If you look at the United States planes, they had steel armor in the back that, so it would protect that pilot. So if you hit that cockpit of the Japanese Zero, that, that pilot was in trouble. But they kept it light so it was maneuverable, could fly a long distance, could fly you know, very fast, all that jazz, right? So it was the king of the air at that time, at the very beginning. However, that turned. By 1943, the tide had turned dramatically. The United States had the P-51 Mustang, the Flying Corsair, my favorite, and the Hellcat, which my friend's dad flew, and it hit a, the Hellcat hit a 19-to-1 kill ratio over the Japanese Zero. 19-to-1. It had reversed completely by 1943 going forwards. In fact, in what was called the Mariana Turkey Shoot, the United States airmen scored 350 kills in the air to a loss of, guess how many? 23. That's why it was called the Great Mariana Turkey Shoot. That was the Hellcat was highly involved with that. So the question becomes, why? How did that happen? What took place that we went from the beginning of 1942 where the zero was the feared thing in the air and every American pilot feared it greatly, to a year and a half later and for the rest of the war, the United States planes were now the king of the air and and won the air war. Well, a couple things. Large improvements in the plane itself was one, right? In tactics, big time, right? Also pilots and their training, so if you think about the Mariana Turkey shoot, they, the Japanese lost 350 well-trained pilots, gone, one day. 
how much time and effort and energy would it take to replace that, right? So the question becomes this. For the United States military, for the Navy, for the engineers, for the manufacturers, for the pilots, for the pilots' trainers, how much effort do you think was put in place to take that, to make that turn? How much energy, how much focus, how much effort did it take for the Americans to turn from here and do a 180? Everything was at stake. The, the, the nation was at stake. Every ounce of energy was poured into turning the tide in the Pacific War. I used to watch, before our TV broke, this little TV show called Baba Black Sheep. It was about the flying Corsairs, and I think it was Guadalcanal, Pappy Boyentin, right? All that stuff. And I desperately wanted to be one of those pilots. I was thinking if I could transform my life back to that time, and I could guarantee I'd live through the war, that'd be the key caveat, right? I would love to be, I mean, they had the leather helmets, they had the goggles, they had the canopy open, they're flying through the air, they see the enemy, they come in, you know, that type of thing. It just looked like a ton of fun, right? It looks fun on TV. I'm sure it wasn't for them. But it took a tremendous, tremendous amount of effort by the Americans to turn that thing around. Well, if you talk about effort, and there's the word for the day, because we're going to talk about sanctification, and we're talking about effort towards this, Peter has something to say about effort. What does he have to say about it? Let's read what he has to say. Second Peter, you can follow along if you want, is Second Peter, first chapter, starting with verse 3, and see what he has to say about this. So he's going to lay out the land here in the first few verses, and then do an if-then or that type of scenario. So here he is. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's talking about God's um, mercy and grace and gifting. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, his glory, his excellence, by which he has granted again to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, so that you can partake of the divine nature, not the earthly, natural nature that we are born with, but of divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So, okay, so Paul lays it out. God has given you everything you need for spiritual well-being and growth. Everything. And then he makes the pivot right here. If we talk about, yes, salvation is a gift from God, sanctification takes effort a lot. For this very reason, for these reasons, because God has given us this, for this reason, make every effort. That's not a casual statement. That's not a, well, okay, maybe today, maybe tomorrow. Make every effort to do what? What are you supposed to make effort to do? To supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. This is a mini fruits of the spirit list here. And knowledge with self-control. 
and self-control with steadfastness. What pastor was talking about in the sermon today. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. There's the list. Since God has given you this. You are a believer. God has given you. He has granted everything you need to pursue, to obtain holiness, godliness, righteousness, and God. To, because he's given you all this, for this reason, pursue these things. And then he goes on. In my ESV version here, it says the word increasing. Other versions say with increasing measure. In other words, you can measure it. Okay? For if these qualities are yours, okay, God's laid out everything, and here's the qualities, and if these qualities are yours, in other words, if you are a believer and you have the Holy Spirit and it's prompting you to do these things, and if they are yours, and are increasing, there's the key word, are increasing, not stagnant, then that will keep you from doing what? Being ineffective, and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has given you everything. Here's the qualities you need to pursue. And if you have these qualities in increasing measure, they will help you becoming from becoming unfruitful. We don't want to be unfruitful. And ineffective, we don't want to be ineffective. We want to be effective. We want well done, good and faithful servant at the end of our life. As a Christian, that's what I want. Well done, good and faithful servant for the rest at the end of my life. So that's what Peter is imploring us to do to pursue sanctification more or less with a vengeance. Okay, so using that as a background here, we are going to jump into Ephesians on chapter 2. Um, and we're going to do uh, verses 11 through 22 in chapter 2. And in my book, this little guideline book that I have right here from Warren Worsby, Be Rich, that I'm using to kind of help me guide through this and read through this, he calls this group of verses the Great Peace Mission. That's how he labels it. In other words, it's a peace mission. This is a Great Peace Mission. Not to reference World War II again, but whenever I think of peace, if I think of the word peace, I think of the ironic video clip of Neville Chamberlain walking off his plane in March of 1938. He's got this piece of paper in his hand. He's waving it to a, a very enthusiastic crowd. He's just met with Adolf Hitler, and he, Adolf Hitler at that time had broken all the rules of the Versailles Treaty, and he's expanding his empire with the German nation, and someone has to stop him. So Neville Chamberlain goes over there with other world leaders. They get in front of Adolf Hitler. They say, Adolf, you know, you've been a bad boy, but if you just promised not to go any farther... We'll love you. We'll keep you. You can do exactly what we've done so far. We'll let you keep what you've stolen so far. 
but we'll love you and we'll let you have this agreement. And so, of course, Adolf signs the piece of paper, laughingly, I'm sure, in the inside. And Neville Chamberlain comes home and he steps off that plane and he says what? His famous words are so ironic. What a dope. He says, so ironic, he says, peace in our time. Peace in our time. That was Neville Chamberlain. One year later, almost to the date, Hitler invades Poland. This is what Churchill said about Neville Chamberlain. You were given the choice between war and dishonor. You chose dishonor, and you will have war. That's my friend Winston Churchill, chubby, cigar-smoking, smart aleck, who led uh, Britain in World War II. He was an interesting individual. So this is the great peace mission, right? So what is peace? We're going to talk about this. Uh, We'll start with verse 11. We'll just kind of march through this. And there's several things in here. In fact, there's three specific things we're looking for here, or we're talking about. One is uh, separation. The, The Gentiles in Ephesus have separation from God. Okay? And then we're going to talk about reconciliation. One of my favorites. I love reconciliation. And then uh, the last one we'll talk about is called unification. So separation, reconciliation, unification. So we'll be looking for those themes as we go through this. We'll read the whole thing. We'll just kind of march through that at that time. The question is, what is peace in the first place? So we talk about the peace mission. Well, I looked up a variety of... Uh, Oh, you know how you look up the word run in the dictionary? This is about five different pages of run. You can run to the store. You can run a company. You can run a marathon, right? Different definitions. What does peace mean? Well, it could mean harmony between two parties. That'd be one definition. It could mean victory over one's enemies. In other words, the absence of war. Here's one. No sin, no guilt, no condemnation. I think about Romans chapter 8 in that one. But then you have Jehovah Shalom, the God of our peace, the God of peace, right? Completeness, soundness, well-being, opposite of harm. Okay, you ever had that nagging feeling when you don't feel at peace about a decision, or you feel completely at peace? Okay, so let's just start with uh, verse eleven. Therefore, remember that you that. At one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. You ever heard of the star-bellied sneeches and the plain-bellied sneeches? That's what we have here. The circumcision crowd is the star-bellied sneech. Who's seen the sneeches? Anybody? Come on. There we go, right? You know what that looks like, right? It's a, it's a, it's a Dr. Seuss deal. You had the star-bellied, they had a star in their belly, star-bellied sneech, and then you had a plain-bellied sneech, and they were just fighting. They didn't like each other. So we have the circumcision and the uncircumcision here, right? It's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, obviously in a physical outward deal. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Remember I talked about the word separation. Alienated, again separation, from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Okay, so that's explaining who the Gentiles are. This is your state of mind. This is your state of being, right? And then he pivots. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. There's the vehicle, for he himself is our peace. There's your, there's your word, the peace mission. Who has made us both one and has broken and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Think of the verbiage there. Think of the image. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Again, emphasis is peace. And might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross. Excuse me. And he came in, uh, I, I lost my point. I see, I look up and down, I do that sometimes. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access, one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's going to be where we're hit on in the future at the end of our uh, deal. Let's talk about the temple of the Lord, in the Lord. In him you are also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, here's the key word here. At the very beginning, the first few verses, is the word Separation. Separate, apart from, not included. You are separate from, distant, not here, right? You're, in other words, you're without. You don't have. You, you are without, separated. What are they without? What are Gentiles without? few things, according to our scripture. First of all, they're without Christ. If you read much upon the Gentiles of Ephesus, they worship the goddess Diana. So they knew not Christ. Christ was not known to them. Paul is the vehicle for which he, uh, Christ becomes known to them, right? But you'll, one note here is in, in their author talks about this. Every unsaved person, unsaved, every unsaved person, whether Jew or Gentile, is outside Christ and therefore condemned. If you read Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That means there is condemnation to those who are without. So they're without Christ. These are the Gentiles now he's talking about. Okay, so first thing. They're without citizenship. Okay? God made the Jews a nation. If you read the Old Testament, God specifically made the Jews, the Israelites, a nation for him. Right? No such agreement with the Gentile nations. None. So without citizenship, without Christ, without citizenship, without covenants. They don't have any covenants. God did not make any covenants with the Gentile nation, none. However, and this is a part here that I had, I'm not going to say a tough time understanding I was going through this, but it was drawn to me, it just it drew my mind as to what is this all about. However, the blessings... The blessings, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go to your go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, 
and I will make you a great nation. So there it is. God is talking about the Israelite nation, the Hebrew nation. I will make you a great nation, descendants. Okay? And I will bless you and make your name great. The name Abram, or now Abraham, is great. If you study Christianity, you know who Abraham is, right? So that you will be a blessing. And here's the verbiage, and our author talks about this very specifically in my book at great length, or at some length, and those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And here's the key verb, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. So there's the blessing from God to Abraham that includes all families. The author of my book says that means Gentiles, even though they're not a nation that God has given a covenant to. Without Christ, without citizenship, without covenant, it's a bad day for the Gentiles, without hope. What is hope? Think about it. When I left this morning, I said I talked to. I looked outside. There's that sun shine, shine, you know, a little bit warmer outside. The wind's not blowing. You step outside. Ah, spring. Hope for a spring. Feels. I, I can just feel it, right? You sense it, taste it. We're not going to get into that again. Without hope, what is hope? Well, what is hopelessness? Would be a better question. Uh, the Gentiles were without hope. They had no help, no hope available to them whatsoever. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 talks about this. The coming of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Without Christ, without God, you have no hope. There is no hope. Your hope is only in earthly circumstances. What's going on in front of you today? I hope so-and-so wins tonight. Without hope. So the Gentiles are without Christ, without citizenship, without covenants, without hope, and the worst ones are yet to come, without God. They had gods aplenty. They worship a lot of gods, but not the one true God. I don't have time to go into it today, but Psalm 115 goes into this extensively. So I'll just use it as a reference, right? So they don't, they have without hope. They have no hope, no God, no covenant. These are the Gentiles. They're in a bad situation, right? One of the key questions I was going to ask myself on this whole thing is, why? Why is that the situation? Well, Paul goes into this pretty extensively of why they have no hope. Why Gentiles, why unsaved have no hope. And here's the key question, who's at fault? Why is that the case? Well, he gets into this in Romans chapter 1. Same author written in a different letter, God's wrath on unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We witness that on a daily basis. And here is some description here about the human mind and the human soul and the human say the presence of God is evident. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For, in, for his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. We have no excuse. If you are an unbeliever, you have no excuse. There's no such thing as, I didn't know that was a law in court. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. The Gentiles worshiped different gods, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Let me just hit that one more time. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, which is prevalent. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth? How do we suppress the truth? We choose not to listen to it. Our society is awesome, not awesome, clever, um, fully equipped to do that. For what can be known about God is plain to them because of what because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Do you ever perceive something? You ever perceive something where you say, now I haven't heard this or seen this, but my perception tells me this might be the case over here. It's like perception based on maybe it's experience, your knowledge of something in the past, I perceive, I think, I think this is going on. Have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So man has no excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man in birds and animals and creeping things. The spiritual plight of the, of, uh, of the Gentiles is not caused by God. It is a deliberate turning away from him. And that's how we all are, unless you have the graciousness of the grace of Jesus Christ enters your life. In other words, it's a willful disobedience is what it is. And Paul describes that so well right here in this little piece in Romans about the state of mankind, the plight of man. Just, but we have no excuse. Very clear. Cannot get away from that. Okay, so enough separation, enough doomsday, enough, enough uh, of that. Now we're going to go to reconciliation. This is an awesome piece. Reconciliation. What does it mean to reconcile? To bring together again. The key word there is again. So we are created by God, right? So bring together again. Does that mean we got in a fight? No, we were separated because of our sin. 
Okay. Key word here is enmity between Jews and Gentiles and then sinners and God. So two different items in verses 13 through 15 between Jews and Gentiles and the rest of be sinners between sinners and God. Reconcile. To bring together again. To heal and to bring together. Okay? I remember so vividly we were going through marriage counseling or I should say premarital counseling before we got married and uh we had three sessions. Two of the sessions, I have no idea what we talked about. None. Zero. I, we could have t- played a tape recording. I still wouldn't be able to recite it to you, right? But one of them, I remember so vividly because it's my brother-in-law who did this. He's a pastor. He did, the, uh, he did our wedding, right? And he says, okay, here's what we're going to talk about tonight, Jeff and Brenna. We're going to talk about ground rules for fighting. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Fighting? We're in love. Harmony. What are you talking about? We don't fight. That's because we haven't got married yet. That's why you don't fight, right? So, so I said, I said, what do you mean ground rules for fighting? Well, you said you need ground rules for fighting. I said, you mean argument, conflict? What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Ground rules for fighting. So it's assumed we're going to fight. Yes, guarantee you. Okay, fine. I'll take your word for it. We're going to fight. Probably didn't take long, right? Um, but here was the key part that he put together for us. And it said, here's the ground rules for fighting. Rule number one, and this is probably the biggest rule there is by far. Do not bring, bring up the past. Love keeps no record of wrong. Do not bring up the past. If you get in an argument, a fight, a squabble, a disagreement, I don't care what you call it. We're talking about marriage right now, but it could be between any parties, right? Do not bring up the past. So here's what you can't do. If Brent and I were to get in a, disar- dis, you know, a disagreement about something, I can't pull a card out of my pocket and say, bing, yeah, but two years ago you said this. That's a no-no. Can't do that. Cannot bring up the past. Stick to the subject. I remember it so vividly. And I will tell you, it's extremely helpful. Anyway, reconciliation... Right? If there's a disagreement, there's this, there's separation, there's an argument, there's whatever. To reconcile means to bring together again. It's healing. How many times have you had a conflict with someone and you think in your mind, you can't go to sleep that night because you know, you know in your mind you need to set things right with that individual. You need to go to them and whatever it takes to reconcile, you need to do that even if you think they're completely in the wrong, which they're probably not usually. Okay? So reconciliation. What does it mean when, when God, well, we're talking about the uh, Jews and the Gentiles reconciling, reconciling because there's an enmity between them, right? They don't like each other. And then there's between God and sinners. So let's just talk about what we call the old position and the new position. So here you are over here. Here's the Gentiles right here, and then here's the new ones. Kind of like a before and after, right? So before, after, right? So before and after, a sharp contrast to this. Here's the old position of the Gentiles. They're without Christ. We talked about that, the withouts, the separation. Now they're in Christ in Ephesians 2.13. They were aliens. That's a bad word. Now they're a holy nation, 1 Peter 2.9. 
before and after. Strangers, no more strangers, Ephesians 2.19. No hope, we talked about that. Called in one hope, Ephesians 4.4. Without God, Ephesians 2.12, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.3. So like there's sharp contrast of reconciliation here before and after. Okay? And now we're talking about enmity between sinners versus God. That is verses 16 through 18. Let's just hit those again. And might reconcile us both. Notice the word both there. Both means Jews and Gentiles. To God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What a verbiage there. Killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off... and peace to those who are near. For through him we both, keyword again, have access, keyword again, in one spirit to the Father. Same boat. Peter says in other uh, parts of the Bible, but puts no difference between us Jews and us Gentiles. So what is the dilemma here then? What is the, I'll use the word dichotomy to a certain degree here, so the God of love, the God of love, of mercy, kindness, wants to reconcile, it's God's will that all men would come to him, wants to reconcile the sinner to himself. He wants to reconcile the sinner to himself. We're all sinners. Wants to reconcile, to bring the sheep in, the fold in. But the God of holiness who is just and righteous must see that sin is judged. What a dilemma. How can that be reconciled? We'll first hit on this. In Hebrews... Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified of blood. Think of the Old Testament, the sacrifice of the animals. And here's the key word. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. As sinners, we have no chance, zero, absolutely none, of being reconciled with God unless there is shedding of blood. Whose blood? We all know is Christ. That's what the verbiage Christ is our peace. He made peace. He reconciled a holy and righteous God and sinners that separation by sin, by our own willful sin, the shedding of blood. And I, that verbiage to me is so striking. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ is our peace. He made peace. Reconciliation to the sinners. We talked about this in... Oh yes, this is a good one. Matthew 27, verses 50 to 51. A symbol... Something that happens that signifies or points out. 
But others said, this is in Matthew 27, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, i.e. he died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. What is the significance of that curtain? Separation? Who could enter the Holy of Holies? The priest? Could the average person do that? No. The curtain is split in two to represent access, reconciliation, the killing of the hostility. It is God's righteousness that has to have his holiness, that has to see that sin is judged. And it is judged, and he provided that. He provided that for us, graciously, kindly. So there's our, rec- there's our reconciliation. So we have separation. We have reconciliation as sinners who are now uh, come to God through his son Jesus, right? And last one, go sports team, we're going to talk about unification, to be unified, what Jews and Gentiles are in Christ. 19 through 22 is the verses here that, that talk about that. Okay, hold on two seconds. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Fellow citizens, brothers. Sisters, fellow citizens, citizenship with the saints and members of the household of God. So we're one nation, okay? Um, our, our author has something to say on this, uh, one nation. I'm just going to read briefly what he has to say. And hold on two seconds. One nation. This is what our author, who I don't quote much, but in this case I wanted to. One nation, 19a. Talking about citizenship. Israel is God's chosen nation. But they rejected their redeemer and suffered the consequences. The kingdom was taken from them and given to, quote, a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Matthew 21, 43. This new nation is the church, a chosen generation a holy nation, a peculiar people. In the Old Testament, the nations were reckoned by their descent from Shem, Ham, or Japheth. I'm a Gentile. I wonder which one I came from. Genesis 10. In the book of Acts, we see these three families united in Christ. This is, this is what I didn't understand or know about before I read this. In Acts 8, a descendant of Ham is saved. Okay. The Ethiopian treasure in Acts 9, a descendant of Shem, the word Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, the apostle. And in Acts 10, the descendants of Japheth, the Gentiles in the household of the Roman soldier Cornelius. Sin has divided mankind, but Christ unites by his spirit. All believers, regardless of national background, belong to that holy nation with citizenship 
in heaven. Our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. So we have the citizenship. Okay? So no longer aliens, strangers from uh, strangers and aliens, uh, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And he taught, described saints in chapter 1, if you remember, right? Now we're going to talk about family. Okay? 19b, last part of B, and members of the household of God. We'll just keep uh, finishing the sentence. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being at the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what is... What does it mean to be family? I mentioned this morning as I started this, instantly hit my mind. Why? Because it's extremely important to me that my dad was born 94 years ago today. Again, in a log cabin with no running water, no electricity. The good old days, right? So I know exactly who's in my family, right? Um, but here we're talking about the family of God members of the household of God, in other words, brothers and sisters. This family is found in two places. It's found in heaven and it's found in earth. We are all brothers and sisters of that family. Okay? Now, in verses 20 through 22, it talks about a temple. This was a little bit more difficult for me to grasp, comprehend, be able to visualize Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I can understand that. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, where, where does God walk and where does he uh, live when you look at the Old Testament? Well, in Genesis, God is walking with his people. Okay? In Exodus, he, he dwells with his people in the tabernacle. In 1 Kings, he dwells in the temple itself, right? And the next dwelling would be the body of Christ himself. Talks about being a temple. The temple here will last forever. And on it, he will build his church, as in reference to Matthew sixteen eighteen. The temple is fitly framed together as the body of Christ. That is the temple. That is the temple that we worship. That is the temple that we have on our mind. Okay, I'm going to start into uh, just a few minutes here, uh, chapter 3, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what's called the mystery or the secret. And it's basically the secret or the mystery is bringing uh, God bringing Jesus to the Gentiles, the once separated, right, and now reconciled if you're a believer in Christ, right? And we're going to talk about three things. The importance of it is to Paul. It's extremely important to Paul. It's important to the Gentiles, which we will obviously emphasize. We'll talk a little bit about the angels, and then also it should be important to Christians today. So we'll just start out uh, chapter 3, kind of go uh, from there. The mystery of the gospel revealed. Now, here's Paul pivoting and talking about, we'll just go ahead and read. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Notice he says the word prisoner. He's an actual prisoner when he writes this. He's an actual prisoner. 
Remember he talks about, remember my chains. He's an actual prisoner when he writes this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, but that's who he identifies as a prisoner too, obviously in a positive way. On behalf of you Gentiles. Why is Paul here? He's here to bring the word to the Gentiles. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, okay, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. What is that? Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, has now been revealed to the holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. What we just talked about, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of, uh, and the prom- of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There it is. Here's the secret, the super secret. The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of man and, the, and other generations, this has now been revealed. The mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs. If you, if you understand why Paul was an actual prisoner, there's enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles big time. So when Paul comes along and says, ah, I'm bringing the gospel, I'm bringing it to the Gentiles. The Jews hated that. If you read in Acts, as soon as he mentions that, the anger dwells up. The division between the two. Those people are not No, no. Gentiles, no. They cannot be part of us. They cannot be God's people. As a result, Paul's imprisoned. He becomes a prisoner because he is the vessel to the Gentiles and it's not popular with the Jews. So when God tells Ananias, I'm going to show Paul, Saul then, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's built right into that. He became a prisoner because he brought Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, which was highly offensive to the Orthodox Jews. Hated that. None of that. We're not doing that. But Paul does it anyway. It's important to the Gentiles as well. We'll start with number six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We'll go to the next two verses. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Think about his road to Damascus. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. And here's the the unsearchable riches of Christ. So the richness of Christ can now be shared with the Gentiles, even though a good chunk of the Jews reject it. Okay? In Christ, being Jew or Gentile is, is neither an asset or a liability here. There is one body. Okay, so 
It's important to Paul, as we first read, it's important to the Gentiles big time, and we're going to read verses 11 through 13, where it should be important to us today as believers, and here's the reason why. Starting with verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And this is a man in chains. This is a man in prison chains. And this is what he says. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your, which is your glory. Let me emphasize that. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, talking about Jesus Christ. So this is what he's asking the Gentiles that he's writing to, that he's known some of them because of his trips and previous to Ephesus in the first place, right? And this is what he's this, this is what he's asking them to do and 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 put this put this as you as the recipient here of these words you're you're just imagine you are in Ephesus because you are a Gentile a believer so think about this as being you so I'm asking you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory Paul was the chosen vessel to demonstrate that. His love for the Gentiles and the Jews is being demonstrated here. He's bringing him the, them the gospel of Christ, which he thinks is so important, as he first emphasized at the very beginning here of, of, of the you know, third chapter, for this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus and behalf of Gentiles, he's pleading with them. Please listen. Listen to me. This is what I have to say. You know who I am. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Okay? So he is pleading with the Gentiles to listen to him, to understand his suffering, and to understand that his suffering is specific for bringing them the gospel, for their benefit, which is your glory. Paul was quite the man. He was quite the dude, wasn't he? He was just focused and laser focused in, and he makes every effort here to bring this to them. And you can consider his condition of life at the time and realize his devotion to that. Uh, next week we'll go into last half of chapter 3, first part of chapter 4. I'll end us in prayer today. Thank you to God for your word, and thank you for the witness of Paul that he would bring sinners the good news of Jesus Christ, and that you gave him that extreme desire and devotion to do so. He's your vessel. You are to be praised for bringing your word to us so that we could humbly accept, and we pray that we would do that. They would see how precious your promises are and how precious your word is, that we would cling to it 
We ask for your forgiveness, your hand of mercy. We ask that we be humble before you. We pray this in your name. Amen. We'll see you next week.